David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. This is another special episode of a Wednesday night class I'm teaching on the spiritual disciplines. Silence, solitude, and fasting are biblical spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, and yet they're not quite spiritual disciplines in and of themselves. So silence, for the sake of silence, won't do you much good or much spiritual growth. I don't encourage you to take any sorts of vows of silence. They're not going to help you. Being alone in solitude won't do you much good. Fasting, which is refraining for a time from eating food, That won't make you a mature Christian. Well, what will? What's going to make you a mature Christian is meditating on God's Word and prayer and worship. But those disciplines of reading God's Word and meditating on it, prayer and worship, those disciplines happen within a context. You've got to find a time, a place, an occasion to do those things. So we, as it were, practice our game out on a field. We drill ourselves and discipline ourselves to practice dribbling the ball in soccer, for example. But we can't do that in our living rooms. We need a context, a place, a field, a time, an occasion to practice the spiritual disciplines. And so silence, solitude, and fasting can do us much good as ways of helping us get into the ordinary means of grace. But what does that look like? How do we effectively spend time in silence, in solitude, and even perhaps spend time in fasting? We're going to learn about this and more on this episode of Big Truths. look at Psalm 119 as we begin. (coughs) We'll begin looking at verse 41 because this is our sixth class. So this is the sixth section of Psalm 119 beginning in verse 41. Verse 41, the psalmist writes, May your loving kindness Also come to me, O Yahweh, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take away the word of truth utterly from my mouth, for I wait for your judgments. So I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. So one of the ways that the psalmist believes he's going to be able to keep God's law continually is that it's in his mouth. He's praying that he would be able to have the word of truth, verse 43, in his mouth, that the Lord would not take away the very word of truth as he waits on the Lord's judgments to do righteously on earth. Verse 45, And I will walk in a wide place, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. 
and I shall not be ashamed. Isn't that amazing? I have confidence to speak about God's word before the kings of earth, and I have no reason to be ashamed. That's the kind of confidence knowing the Lord through his word can give you. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will muse on your statutes. Now imagine this psalmist, these commandments. Imagine if you were in his shoes and had those same commandments and only those. So you were an Israelite, possibly King David wrote Psalm 119. What scriptures would you have had? These commandments which you love. I mean, you would have had the first five books of the Bible and maybe the book of Job, possibly. But these commandments to know the Lord, he loves the Lord through them. And where do we remember in the first five books of Moses where love is mentioned? Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And these words that I tell you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. But he doesn't say in verse 47 and 48, I love you. He says, your commandments, which I love. Are these two things at odds with one another? Either you can love the Bible or love God? Well, it looks like the psalmist is saying, I love the Lord through his law. I have delight and love for his commandments, for they have come from my God. And I know him through his word. And so the love that he has is for the word and for the God behind the word. Amen. Let's pray now, and may these things be true of us as well. Holy Father in heaven, we pray that we would love you through your word, that you would help us, like the psalmist says, to muse, to meditate on your statutes, that we would look to them and love them because we love you. Help us to give, uh, help give us this confidence that the psalmist speaks about to have boldness even before kings, to stand on this firm foundation, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, this now is class number six, like I said, of spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about a few disciplines called silence, solitude, and fasting. So I like to think of solitude and silence sort of like the field where you can practice your game. So maybe you're a soccer player. You can imagine you have a soccer coach, and he tells you, I need you to practice your dribbling, running across the field, kicking the ball as you go. So you need to do that. You need to be disciplined. Practice your game. We also need somewhere to do it, right? You can't practice running across a field in your own living room or in your own bedroom. You need to practice a skill, and you need a place to practice it. So I like to think of silence and solitude as the field where you can practice your game. Uh, you need to discipline yourself, but you also need a context to do that, a place, a time, a moment where you can practice the spiritual disciplines. So solitude and silence is a place or a time, you might describe it, to practice the spiritual disciplines. 
usually. So in one sense, silence and solitude are not really disciplines in and of themselves. They're more the context for your contemplation. So don't think of silence and solitude like sitting in a chair in an empty room just staring at the wall and just trying to clear your mind. Okay, I got to practice silence and solitude. So I'm just going to be really, really quiet and sit still in an empty room. No, because remember on our first evening together, we talked about, or rather one of the early evenings we talked about on meditation. We talked about there's Eastern meditation and there's biblical meditation. Uh, Eastern meditation is all about clearing your mind, thinking nothing. Uh, biblical meditation is filling up your mind. Uh, so solitude and silence are occasions where you could do that to help practice you uh, meditating on scripture. So they're not really disciplines in and of themselves necessarily, but at the same time, they really kind of are dis disciplines. It takes discipline to remove distractions, right? You need to be disciplined uh, to say no to TV. You need to be disciplined to set down your phone and stop scrolling and scrolling and looking at the headlines and on social media and just to get off and think, you know, I could probably be spending my time a little better than this. Maybe I should be reading the Bible. That does take discipline to make time for silence and some solitude, uh, to simply be alone with your thoughts, to chew and to digest some of the things you've been hearing about in sermons or in different lessons, to think and just dwell with your own soul and to just think, am I happy? Am I content? Uh, do I love the Lord? Uh, am I faithfully loving my family? Sometimes it's good to be alone with your thoughts, to not be so addicted to noise. Uh, for those of you who still listen to the radio, uh, we hardly ever turn off our radio in the car, right? Uh, we turn on the car and the radio is already playing. You never really turn it off. You just turn off the car, which stops the radio. We're just addicted to noise. And sometimes it's good just to drive and just listen to nothing. Be alone with your thoughts. Just go out in the backyard and just sit without always having to feel like you're doing something and being productive. So why would we want silence and solitude? Well, I can think of six reasons why. Six reasons why I would want you to consider making a habit of silence and solitude. And the first one is to minimize distractions. Why would we want to practice some silence and solitude? To minimize distractions. And friends, in doing so, you may not realize you're actually following Jesus' example. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, uh, looking at verse 22 and following. Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 22, it says, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. 
And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Sometimes our master sought out times of silence and solitude to be away from the crowds and even away from the disciples, to get alone, to pray. Why would he want to do that? I mean, isn't he God? I mean, can't he be like the best super prayer, prayer ever? Well, Jesus, according to his human nature, even he needed times away from the crowds. He needed times in silence and in solitude so that he would be away from distractions, I think, so that he could spend time praying alone. There's other examples. If you're taking notes, you can look also at Mark 1.35, as well as Luke 4.42. There's other examples of Jesus spending time alone in prayer. So why would we want to practice silence and solitude? Uh, number two, to express trust in God. To express trust in God. Sometimes it doesn't feel very productive to just sit and be silent, to just pray. We always feel that we need to do something. I got to do something more. I got to I got a double task. Not only am I going to fold laundry, I'm going to listen to a podcast as well. We always feel that we got to go somewhere, say something, do something. Well, sometimes we just need to sit and be silent and trust in the Lord and to just pray, to realize all of our striving, all of our work and doing. Ultimately, it's the Lord who builds the house. Um, I'll read a few verses to you. You can turn there as well, but thinking of uh, Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 20. It says, But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. One of the right responses to realizing the Lord is holy, he is enthroned in his temple, is the earth ought to be silent before him. Or you can think of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 7, the next book. Zephaniah 1, 7, Be silent before the Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is near, the day of the Lord, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has set apart his guests. We can think of Psalm 61. Psalm 61, beginning in verse 1, the psalmist David says, Hear my cry of lamentation, O God. Give, hear, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I think I wrote down the correct psalm. Psalm 61. I think I wrote down the wrong psalm. I was in a rush today, sorry. Oh, it's 62, that's why. Psalm 62, beginning in verse 1, he says, another psalm of David, Surely my soul waits in silence for God. From him is my salvation. Surely he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. So he has trust in the Lord, therefore 
He waits for the Lord to give the proper response. He is waiting in silence for his God. Verse 5 of Psalm 62. Surely wait in silence for God, O my soul, for my hope is from him. Surely he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. So he expresses, say again. That's Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2 and verse 5 and 6 from the same psalm. So he is expressing his trust in the Lord in his own silence, knowing that whatever trouble he's going through, he could try to stand up and run and go and do and fix it. But he's sitting in silence, trusting in the Lord to take care of things. Or another reference, Isaiah 30, verse 15. Isaiah 30, 15. For thus the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and trust is your might, but you are not willing. Excuse me, I skipped a line. In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your might, but you were not willing. So Isaiah 30, 15 says, It's in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your might. It takes trust in the Lord to just sit and just let him take care of things. So it's a discipline to just rest, to be silent, to pray, to trust in the Lord. A third reason why we would want silence and solitude is to be physically and spiritually restored. To be physically and spiritually restored restored. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 31. Mark six thirty-one, And he, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I think that's so wonderful that our master noticed uh, his own disciples getting worn down and needing to eat. That the ministry that they were doing together was too much. And he cared for their physical bodies and their rest. And he told them, hey guys, let's just come away for a while. Let's get in a boat. Let's find a desolate place away from everyone else. Get in the boat, find some outlet, a rocky shore on the Sea of Galilee. Let's just sit down, guys. They didn't even have time to eat, and our master knew their bodies were wearing down. And so he got in the boat with him, with them, to a desolate place so that they could be physically and even spiritually restored. Um, it's good for us to recognize that uh, we're not limitless. We do have limits as people, and God recognizes that. And it takes discipline to just stop, to realize and recognize our own limitations. It is a worshipful thing to get a good night's sleep, to go to bed early and not always be up late and always getting up early. It takes discipline. This is trust in the Lord as well, knowing that He's made us as needy people and sometimes as weak. We need sometimes to just stop and be physically and spiritually restored as well.
But it's also good to be silent, number four, to regain a spiritual perspective. Silence and solitude is good sometimes to regain a spiritual perspective. You can think about Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was in the temple. He encounters an angel. He had been praying for many decades for he and his wife to have a baby. He was a righteous man walking in all the ways of God. But apparently even this righteous man walking in all the ways of the Lord, uh, praying for decades for a child, finally gets his prayer answered. An angel appears to him saying that you're going to have a son. And even this righteous man didn't have a right and proper spiritual perspective. He doubted. He wasn't sure he could really trust in this. So chapter 1, verse 20 of Luke, the angel says, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And then he uh, his wife is not pregnant yet. He goes back home. She conceives. She gives birth nine months later. All that time, he's silent until verse 63. Verse 63 of Luke 1. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they all marveled. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak, blessing God. It took some time for this righteous man to regain a proper spiritual perspective. He needed to stop talking so that he could just sit and listen and think, and not always be doing work. He had to go home away from the temple. His time was up for that time of ministry. He needed a sabbatical. He needed time off to regain a spiritual perspective to think about how he wasn't trusting in the Lord. He needed time away so that his heart could be then be filled up thinking about the things that God had told him so that he could rightly respond to the Lord. So why might we want to seek silence and solitude? Number five, to seek the will of God. It's good for us to consider times of silence and solitude in order to seek the will of God. Flip a few chapters over to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, 12. Luke 6, 12. Now it happened that at this time he, Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. And he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Why did Jesus want to spend the whole night praying? Maybe, according to his human nature, he needed to think about who to choose as his disciples. According to his divine nature, the divine will and the divine mind, that was already decided, predestined. 
But Jesus needed time thinking about his future ministry. He needed time before choosing these 12 men. And he wanted to spend the night praying. Jesus, as a man according to his human nature, wanted to spend all night praying before he chose these men. He wanted to obey his Father. He wanted to do the right thing. And so, before he made this important decision, he spent a long time praying to the Lord. He sought as a man the will of God. Number six, why might we want to seek uh, silence and solitude? To learn control of our own tongue. Number six, to learn control of our own tongue. If you listen to Proverbs 17, 27, it says, He who holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered understanding. Uh, I remember in high school and college, I was always kind of shy and quiet, didn't want to talk a lot. And people often said, David, you're just such a wise guy. You, you, you seem so knowledgeable and wise and deep. I was like, I just don't talk. <laughs> this, the, you're, you're mistaking something here. But the psalmist says, even in a fool, if he just stops talking, people are going to think that's a deep man right there. It's good for us sometimes just to not say something, to learn control of our own tongue. Now, what we're not talking about is some kind of vow of silence here. Uh, some Cistercian monks take vows of silence and months and months go by, they won't say anything. They just live in absolute silence. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we're learning self-control um, and so one book written in the year 1859 by Austin Phelps, uh, he called that book The Still Hour. Austin Phelps writes this, It has been said that no great work of literature or of science was ever wrought by a man who did not love solitude. We may lay it down as an elemental principle of, a, of religion, he means by that Christianity, we may lay it down as an elemental principle of religion that no large growth in holiness was ever gained by one who did not take time to be often long alone with God. I just love that quote. No large growth in holiness was ever gained by one who did not take time to be often long alone with God. So that's why I said silence and solitude, they're, in one sense, they're not disciplines in and of themselves. So I don't want anyone thinking, I gotta take a vow of silence now. Just being quiet and like people saying, hey, how are you doing? And you just be quiet and walk away. Uh, you know, that's not the path to godliness, uh, taking vows of silence. What we're talking about with silence and solitude, it's more like the field where you can practice your soccer game. But in another sense, as I said, they are disciplines in and of themselves to say no to certain things so that you would take time. 
because we all have, in one sense, the same amount of time, but we have to take time intentionally and be disciplined to think about times when we're going to say no to a lot of noise and entertainment, to say no to TV and social media, to sometimes take time to often be alone with God. So how do we do this? What does silence and solitude actually look like? Well, number one, we're familiar with this. There's daily times of silence. We call them quiet times. Isn't that amazing? We, we have silence times. That's just built into our kind of modern Western culture. Uh, it's fascinating to think about how Christians would have done this in centuries past when they didn't have printed copies of the Bible, when the only time they would have heard Scripture read out loud is through the lectionary when they gather on the Lord's Day. But to take times, so we have wonderful privileges to have God's Word, multiple copies of it uh, at our homes. So we should be considering daily times of silence, quiet times, that we minimize distractions. So we know we don't have quiet times while we're driving in our cars. Uh, that's quite a distracting time. We don't have quiet times when we're at work. We usually know we're supposed to have quiet times early in the morning. Well, why is that? Because it's kind of minimizing distractions before everyone else is up, before all these demands are required of you, or late at night, or during your lunch break. So we naturally understand there's times to kind of quickly get away during the days for silence and solitude. Something else that you may not have considered, but I would suggest to you, is thinking through extended times of quiet and solitude. You could do this just one time a week, or make time and plans to do this one time a month, or maybe even once a year, building habits into your life. So maybe you walk around the block where you live and you have like a stack of note cards with uh, bullet point things you need to pray for. You write out different psalms. You just know for the next half hour, I'm gonna walk around the neighborhood and I can just look at these note cards and I can be praying as I walk or reading God's word and meditating on just one psalm that you've written down. Or you can think about the corner of your garden. If you have a nice backyard, just get away there and just sit in silence. Just stare up at the leaves, whatever left you have in your backyards. They've all kind of blown away. But you just sit and think, God's just so good. He made a wonderful world. Just have time away from all the noise. You just sit in your backyard and you just plan out 30 minutes or an hour just to sit and just stare and just think and to worship the Lord like that. Or maybe go to a, ben a bench at a public park, spend a couple hours there just walking the trails, intentional times of quiet and solitude where you can just think about your life, your expectations, your hope, um, or you have a boat on the lake, just get away. Or maybe even thinking about an overnight getaway uh, whose sole purpose, this weekend getaway, is just to get away and focus on prayer and Bible study. We understand weekend getaways, that's full of activity and zip lining or kayaking or all these sort of you know, fun things that we do, a nice uh, weekend getaway. But have you ever considered doing a spiritual getaway? Just renting a cabin by the lake, spending two days there and say, I'm going to do nothing but pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to walk around and just journal and think about these sorts of things. A vacation 
for spiritual disciplines. Have you ever considered that before? There's a wonderful story that I was told once, and I, I wish I could have remembered more of the details of this. But there was a Puritan man, this really happened. He was a pastor, he was living in the city of London, and he was very, very ill. And this man was told by his doctors, you're dying, we don't know how much longer you have left to live. And he thought, what am I going to do? I got maybe four months left to live. He felt in his lungs uh, horrible consumption and coughing. And he thought, I'm going to die soon. What am I going to do? Spend the rest of my life doing. And he decided he was going to rent a cottage out in the countryside. And he said, I'm going to go to heaven soon. So I'm going to take my Bible and some pens and quills and a stack of parchment and papers. I'm just going to spend whatever months I have left just writing and reading on what the Bible says about heaven, because I'm going to be there soon. And I just want to focus and meditate and get my soul ready to go to heaven. So he spent his first, first month doing that, reading the Bible, praying, writing about heaven. His second month, his third month, his fourth month. And then he realized, I'm getting better. I'm not dying. <laughs> Because it turns out what happened was living in downtown London was making him sick. It was killing him. And he actually, by preparing to die, saved his own life by getting away into the countryside and breathing the fresh air. And I wish I remembered his name because he published that book on heaven. And I wish I could have given, you know, given you the title of that. But it is a real story. I'm just really foggy on the details. And maybe one day it'll come to me. So here's your homework. You ready? We've been doing homework every single week. Your homework to do before we, Lord willing, gather back together for our last class next week is to find time to do a one-hour getaway. Get away from distractions and noises for one one-hour session. What am I going to do, you ask? I don't know what I'm going to do with myself for an hour. I'm going to be bored out of my mind. One hour of quietness and contemplation, what do I do? Here's what you do. You can do all the disciplines. You can read your Bible. Read it broadly. Read it deeply. You can meditate on Scripture. You can pray through scripture. You can memorize scripture. You can journal and write your thoughts on scripture, your thoughts on your own life, your ambitions, your unmet expectations, self-diagnose some things and spend time with your own soul. And spend time hymn singing, bring a hymnal with you. So I want you to think about this homework assignment. This is your graduation ceremony. So you're taking everything you've been learning Bring a Bible, bring a pen, bring some paper, bring a journal, bring a hymnal if you want, and spend one hour getting away for quietness and for contemplation. Turn off your phone. Tell your family members what you're doing. Don't just disappear. You can just tell them, David's making me do this silly homework assignment. I got to go to the park for an hour. I got to sit in the backyard for an hour. Have a watch with you. Set a little timer. Just a one-hour getaway. You might be asking, well, where do I go? What do I do? Some of you might be saying, it sounds nice, David, to you know, get away for an hour in the park, sit in my backyard, get on my boat 
on the lake or whatever, you're really out of touch with my own life. I, I can't do that. I do not have an hour to give. Uh, I have so many demands on my life, so many kids biting my ankles. Uh, I just can't do it, David. I want to encourage you with the story of Susanna Wesley. Have you heard of Susanna Wesley? She was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist movement, Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer. Susanna Wesley gave birth to 19 children, uh, nine of whom died in infancy, infancy, but still a home, 10 children. Imagine that. It was not possible for, ha for her to have any sort of physical isolation. They weren't very wealthy. They lived on a farm. There was always things to do. Imagine your own life with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, where you had to go out and get your own food every single day, no refrigerator, no washing machine. Imagine all the demands that would be placed on your life living 300 years ago. What she did is that Susanna Wesley created her own tent of meeting. She would take her apron and put it on her head, and the children knew you don't dare disturb mama when she has the apron on her head. And she endeavored every single day to spend two hours reading the Bible and praying. One author said this, Every person in the household, from the smallest toddler to the oldest domestic helpers, knew well to respect this signal. When the apron is on, you don't disturb mama. When Susanna was under the apron, she was with God and was not to be disturbed, except in the case of direst emergency. And there, in the privacy of her own little tent, she interceded for her husband and children and plumbed the deep mysteries of God in the scriptures. So I want to encourage you with that. Not to guilt you, think if she could do it, come on, you can do it. I just want to encourage you to be creative. Think of different ways that you could find some silence and solitude. A.W. Tozer, have you heard of him? He had a prayer closet. He, he spent hours in the boiler room hiding from his family mm -hmm. so that he could read the Bible and just silence and just get in a, a soundproof room so that he could be free from distractions. Maybe you turn on a little headlamp and just hide in your closet. I don't know, but I, I trust you're creative enough and you can be motivated enough to find a place and to find a time where you can spend one hour away from distractions, away from social media, away from everything that might hinder you from focusing upon prayer and the Word of God. So one hour, just once, sometime in the next seven days before we meet again. They might be asking, I still don't know what to do during that time. Like, I could pray, but then I would run out of things to pray. I could maybe journal a little, but what do I write about? What do I journal about? Well, I got a handout here for you. So I'm giving you all the practical helps that I can. Uh, Sonny, if you don't mind. I guess you'll do this side, oh, and um, I guess okay, you don't mind helping. Yeah, thank you. So I have here for you on the first page some helps as you think about silence and solitude. The next couple of pages are about fasting and 
I might have to skim over a lot of things with fasting. We only got about 15 minutes left, 15 or 20 minutes. So a lot of this is from Don Whitney, uh, The Value of Journaling. You see there at the top of the first page. That's from his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. So why should we journal? So you might be thinking through these sorts of things as you approach journaling. Maybe some things you haven't maybe considered journaling is good for. Like number seven, monitoring your goals and priorities. And Don Whitney has also provided here for us 10 reasons, 10 things you could do at the end of day. But I'm sure you could think about the beginning of your day as well. Different things you could do for journaling, as well as 30 different prayer prompts, different things you could think about as praying. You could pray for your love for God, pray for your love for others, pray for your evangelism, pray for your Bible intake, pray for your own meditation and application on Scripture. Number seven, pray about prayer. Have you ever thought about that? Pray that you would have even sweeter and deeper times of prayer together. Um, so any quick questions, clarifications, any helps you think would be good for class for to hear before we move on, think about fasting. Okay. Well, let's spend the time remaining uh, thinking about fasting. So six questions about fasting, six questions and answers as we close tonight. So question number one. What is fasting? I don't have all of this written here on your handout. Some I do, some I don't. So number one, what is fasting? Here's Don Whitney's definition for fasting. Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So I like that definition. It's very broad and it's very narrow at the same time. So sometimes people ask, can I fast from like TV? Is it okay to, to fast from social media? Should we be using that term? Uh, I would prefer to err on the side of caution and I would personally refrain from like a fast, calling it like a fast from social media. Now, no doubt one may derive great benefit from abstaining from watching TV for a week. I think you could do a lot of good for your soul. I think our time could be better spent. So we may want to, for a time, deprive ourselves of certain freedoms and entertainments. Uh, if you think you're being mastered by something in your life, then cut it out. I mean, Paul said, I'm not going to be mastered by anything in 1 Corinthians 6. So take a break from social media, from reading all the headlines, from video games, from TV. It might be good sometimes to realize how much of a hold these things might actually have on you by taking like a five or a six day break from it. But at the same time, food and TV are in different categories. Uh, they're different. You don't need TV or social media but you do need food. Uh, and so our class is the biblical spiritual disciplines. So I just want to be careful and err on the side of caution in that the Bible only talks about fasting in terms of food. 
and temporarily denying yourself food. You can't really temporarily deny yourself TV. I mean, you could, but you don't need it. It's not going to kill you. But stopping from eating, it does kill you. So they're just categorically a little different. But I think there's much good in abstaining sometimes for a week or a month or so from certain things just to try to figure out how much of a hold they have on you and to spend that time better, perhaps. But we do have certain freedoms as a Christian. It's not wrong to play video games, watch TV, be involved in social media. But there's a difference between a freedom and a need. Food is a need, but we have certain freedoms that may be wise sometimes to deny ourselves from as well. Number two, what types of fasting are there in the Bible? Uh, for the sake of time, I won't go through all of these verses. Uh, you see there on page two, top left, uh, what types of fasts are in the Bible? This is again from Dr. Whitney in his book. He has a whole chapter on fasting. I commend that whole book to you, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, as you read scripture, you'll realize uh, there's a lot of different types of fasts. Number one, there was a normal fast. It said Jesus was very hungry when he fasted those 40 days. It doesn't say he was thirsty. So we can understand fasting is depriving ourselves for a time of food, not necessarily food and water. Uh, there are partial fasts as well, uh, only eating certain types of food. And anyone can participate in that, having just a very, very small breakfast and then maybe skipping lunch and then eating dinner. That would be a fast as well. But we also see there are absolute fasts, uh, stopping eating and drinking as well. There's supernatural fasts, there's private fasts, there are congregational fasts where it's more public, there's regular fasts that the people of God were required to do, and sometimes there's just occasional fasts as well. So there's a lot of different types of fasts in the Bible. It's not always singular. Now the next question is, well, am I called to fast? I mean, I see examples of it in the Bible. Should we be doing it? Is this supposed, something Christians are supposed to do? And if we don't do it, we're in sin. Am I called to fast? Like I'm called to pray and called to read my Bible and called to be a meaningful member of a local church. Uh, one of our pastors, Dr. Mark Mills, uh, when we were going through COVID-19, when things were shut down, there were a lot of calls at that time in April for public fasts. And we as the pastors were wondering about how best to approach that, because a lot of people were saying, we need to call the church to fast. We need to tell the congregation, you should be doing this. And we were just wondering, do we have the authority as pastors to call for that, to say, this is expected of you, you should be doing this. And so I think Dr. Mark Mills article is worth uh, me reading out loud for you. I think he says things a lot better and more succinctly than me. So if you don't mind, I think it would be really good for us just for me to read this out loud for us together. He wrote, the crisis our world currently faces is challenging Christians in many ways. The routine of life that was comfortably rolling along has been mired in danger, uncertainty, and anxiety. The response leaders and organizations urge people to fast and pray, such as the Gospel Coalition's Day of Prayer and Fasting on April 4. Without question, God's people throughout history would fast by abstaining from eating for a period of time for a spiritual or ceremonial purpose. The Bible gives evidence of fasting by the Israelites in the Old Testament, Jesus and his disciples, and the early church after Jesus ascended to heaven. 
So why haven't the leaders of our church called us to do the same? Jesus' words in Matthew 6 help us to understand several things about fasting. First, when he says, when you fast. Fasting was not an unusual foreign practice to Jesus' audience. Jesus knew that there would be fasting. People often fasted to show their deep sorrow or mourning. They also fasted to demonstrate their repentance from sin when they called out to God, begging for his mercy. When the leaders of the church in Acts 13 commissioned Paul and Barnabas as the first missionaries, they did so through their prayers to God accompanied by fasting. Second, Jesus says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Hypocrisy in fasting was not unusual, and Jesus warned his followers that they must not fast as a show to be praised by people. How tempting it is to use your physical appearance to let others know how much you are suffering. Jesus said that that kind of fasting receives nothing from God. Third, Jesus says that fasting is a private matter between the believer and God, your Father who sees in secret. Twice in Acts, we find church leaders fasting and praying about pressing situations, but according to Jesus' instruction, the normal practice of fasting was personal and private. How then should you think about fasting in your own life? If you are deeply burdened by a particular sin or need or weighted decision, you should be seeking the Lord's mercy, help, and wisdom through prayer. You may make prayer such a priority that you choose to remove any interruptions, even eating. Fasting can help you focus on the issue at hand. You must be careful to not allow fasting to become a badge of spirituality or a standard by which we judge the spiritual maturity of other believers. But at the same time, you should consider the role fasting might have as you seek to pray earnestly to your Father in heaven without distraction. This applies to an organization, convention, or leader calling upon Christians to fast and pray. You may choose to participate because you want to devote yourself to serious prayer. However, the scriptures do not give pastors or other leaders the authority to require a believer to participate. Neither Jesus nor the apostles ever commanded or even suggested that God's people should fast in the dire situations they faced. The two examples of fasting in Acts were leaders in a local church context, praying and fasting as they commissioned men for services, pastors, or missionaries. There is no indication that the congregations were called upon to join with them. While Paul called upon churches to voluntarily participate in giving to relieve the distress of believers in Jerusalem who were living through the crisis of a severe famine, he did not call on them to fast and pray about that situation. The apostles regularly and repeatedly taught that Christians should be people of prayer. We must not think that we can gain a more favorable response from God because we couple our prayer with personal deprivation or suffering, as the pagan worshipers did in 1 Kings 18. You remember that? The prophets of Baal afflicting themselves, hoping God would therefore answer. It is the prayer of a righteous person that can accomplish much. Practice fasting according to your conscience, but do not let the outward action become the focus over seeking God's face with intensity. So I thought that was very helpful. So my encouragement to you, I'm not requiring this as any sort of homework, but I would ask you to consider fasting in your own life. I think Don Whitney's argument in his book 
when he said, when Jesus said, when you fast, he also said, when you give and when you pray. Number four, what is the purpose of fasting? I think Dr. Mark Mills explained that well in his article. Arthur Wallace, in his book, God's Chosen Fast, wrote this. Fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and importance into our prayer, to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The man who prays with fasting is giving heaven noticed that he's truly in earnest. Not only so, but he is expressing his earnestness in a divinely appointed way. He is using means that God has chosen to make his voice be heard on high. So we shouldn't forget that fasting is not man's idea. Fasting is God's idea. So where do we see the purpose of fasting in the Bible? This is from Don Whitney's book again. He gives 10 reasons why a person might fast. What would it do for us to fast? Number one, to strengthen prayer, to seek God's guidance, to express grief, to seek deliverance or protection, to express repentance and the return to God, to humble oneself before God, to express concern for the work of God, to minister to the needs of others, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God, to express love and worship to God. Now, you don't have to fast in order to do those things, right? You don't have to fast to humble yourself. You could go the rest of your life never fasting, and you can still humble yourself sufficiently. Uh, you can, without fasting, overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God. Um, but I would commend these things to you, to your own conscience. I would commend you searching your own heart to ask, am I afraid to fast? Uh, if I'm reluctant to fast and say, I'm never going to do that, thanks, that was interesting, David, fasting's not for me. I would encourage you to search your own heart and conscience and ask, why am I so hesitant to fast? And make sure it's a good reason as well. Um, but we need to acknowledge that the people of God also sometimes dedicated themselves to fast when doing these things, humbling themselves and praying and dedicating themselves to God. So what benefits uh, might there be to fasting? I would say the same reasons as seeking silence and solitude, to minimize distractions, to express trust in God, uh, perhaps not to be physically and spiritually restored, number three, but to be physically and spiritually focused. It brings the sharpness to your prayer and urgency. Consider fasting to regain a spiritual perspective, to seek the will of God, to learn control not of your tongue, but learn control of your own appetite as well, to find out how much things of this earth have a hold on you. And finally, our last question, question number six, how do I fast? Give me some practical tips. How do I do this? Six practical tips if you consider fasting. Number one, uh, actually, let me give you seven. I forgot one more thing. Thinking about uh, the question, the purpose of fasting. If you're to hear nothing else, from what I had to say on fasting tonight, hear this. Never ever fast without a purpose. Always fast with a purpose. Don't just fast to fast. Well, I guess I'll just 
stop eating today and hope that does me some spiritual good. Always fast with a purpose. So are you about to enter a difficult season of life, a big change, moving to a different city, starting a new job? Maybe you want to fast to help prepare your heart for that big new chapter of your life. Maybe there's something in your life that's distressing you, you're praying about it, you're seeking an answer from the Lord, a change in someone else's life. You might consider fasting for a purpose as you accompany your prayers for that purpose, but always fast with a purpose. Never fast without a purpose. And here's six real practical tips before we close tonight. Six practical tips. Number one, if you're going to fast, start slowly. Start small. Don't start out with a 40-day fast. Start out with lunch. <laughs> start small. Start slowly and you fast. Number two, if you're going to fast, understand the purpose is to afflict yourself, not harm yourself. So it's uncomfortable to realize you're hungry and you realize that you're walking to the pantry or the fridge and you stop like, nope, got to wait. I'm fasting. I forgot. It's uncomfortable. You're afflicting yourself in some way. Uh, but you shouldn't be harming yourself. Uh, you have to consider wisely your own medical needs if you can skip a meal. Uh, the purpose of fasting is not necessarily to uh, not eat, but to feel a sense of hunger. So maybe you, for a meal, just have a small protein shake, or just drink a cup of orange juice. So there were in the Bible partial fasts, not always total fasts as well. So you just feel that edge of hunger, that sense of importance, to know that I'm doing something more important here. I have, I have concerns that are bigger than even me eating, that I would give myself to prayer for this purpose, to say, God, I care more about this need in my life. I care more about this person's salvation than I do eating. And God, I'm gonna dedicate my lunch hour to you in prayer. So you are afflicting yourself, but make sure you don't harm yourself. Uh, before I was married, uh, getting prepared for this big change in my life, I decided to do uh, 40 days of fasting. And I got all the way to day 32. I had to quit. I had a very, very small breakfast. I skipped lunch and I had a very, very small dinner. I didn't kill myself, but uh, I scared a lot of people because over 32 days of having only two half meals at best, I lost a lot of weight. I was deeply emaciated. My mom staged an intervention because she thought I was on drugs. Um, I had to tell her, no, I'm just fasting. That's why I look so gaunt. Uh, but, you know, I was in my 20s. I bounced back very easily from that. Was it wise for me to do that? I don't know. Maybe not. Um, so afflict yourself. Don't harm yourself and cause real lasting bodily harm. You've got to use wisdom about what you're able to do. And maybe it's fine just to, for you to have a small protein drink and a little bit of juice and just continue to feel that sense of hunger. Don't fill your belly so you lose that sense of hunger. Number three, uh, the Lord's Day may be a good day for you to fast. The Lord's Day, Sunday, might be a good day for you to fast. Um, so skipping lunch on that day, spending an hour in prayer right after uh, the worship service, Lord's Day might be a good day for you to fast. Number four, 
try not to fast on a hard day. So if you know you're about to have a really crazy, hectic day, if you know Mondays are really bad for you at work, you got just demand after demand, you can hardly uh, think about what's gonna come next, and it's just gonna be physically really tough, I encourage you, don't fast on that day. Try not to fast on a really hard day where you're gonna be really, really busy and just slammed. Number five, if you're gonna fast, fast on a day when you can pray. So that couples with number four. Number five, fast on a day when you can actually give some time to prayer, to reading scripture, to know that you're going to have a lunch break that's going to be uninterrupted and unhurried, where you got your full 45 minutes or an hour, and you know that you're not going to be distracted, that you can spend time reading your Bible or praying instead of going out to lunch on that day. So consider fasting on a day when you actually can spend time to pray. And number six, I probably have to say it, don't fast to lose weight. <laughs> fast for spiritual purposes. If you want to go on a diet, that's fine, but don't call your diet fasting and try to spiritualize it. Don't fast thinking that swimsuit season's coming up, I gotta fit into my swimsuit soon. Fast for spiritual purposes. And always have a plan when you do fast as well. well. Let's close in prayer. Next week is our last time meeting. Thank you for your participation in this class. I hope it's helpful, and Lord willing, I'll see you next week too. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, how in him is manna from heaven. Thank you, Lord, that for every hurt, for every hunger, for every longing and desire, Jesus is enough. We pray that we could use our lives, our prayer, all the gifts you've given us to your service, Lord, and even thinking about how we use our time and what distracts us and what occupies our thought life. May that even be honoring to you, Jesus, as we offer to you what you deserve, our true spiritual act of worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.